At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning in to our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to His followers in the book of John, we'll learn how to follow in the steps of Christ as He marks out the way of discipleship for us. Do I have everything I need? It's a question that I ask myself a lot, particularly when I am getting ready to go backpacking or hiking or climbing on a big mountain. I I, I obsess over lists, gear, maps, the plans as a whole, hoping that I am prepared as best as possible to venture out into the wilderness. You can ask my family what I do. In the weeks before a backpacking trip, I will take the pack up out of the storage closet in our basement, and I will amass all of my gear, my sleeping bag, tent, stoves, everything I can get, bear canisters, and I will, I will load that pack up, and I will strap it on my back, and I will trot around the house and even go and look in the mirror and see how I look with that pack on. And, and then I will come back, and I will decide, no, this wasn't the way I should have had things, and I'll take things out, and I'll unpack it all, and then I'll repack it a completely different way and make sure that everything is balanced and right on my pack. I'll, I'll, I'll take the maps, I'll take my phone out and I'll use my All Trails app or my GPS apps and I'll, I'll obsess over the trail and the contours of it. I'll, I'll make sure that I learn where the, the trail forks to the right or to the left or what waterfall is there to see or, or what point I need to be ready in case a storm comes so that I can head back down the trail. I obsess over it all. And, and the reason for that is because when I go out hiking and climbing, I want to be safe. I want to have fun. Honestly, I want my trip to be as easy as possible. (laughs) I would think it would be a disaster if I was to be stuck out in the middle of nowhere without the basic essentials for survival. I would hate it. It would be a disaster if I wasn't ready. That's the question. Do I have everything I need that's worth asking ourselves with regard to our spiritual pursuits as well? So so let me put it out there to you today. Do you have everything you need for for growth, for flourishing, for success, for victory in this life? Are, Are you resourced? Do you have everything you need to flourish and to overcome in this world? Now the problem is that Probably most of us, we may say, yes, I do have everything I need. There may be an intellectual assent of some sort of an agreement that, yes, I know the Bible answer is I should say yes. But the problem is that many of us don't believe we have everything we need, practically speaking. We want to cover all of our bases, spiritually speaking. So we diversify our spiritual portfolios. We want to make sure our our risk is covered. And and here's how it plays out. We, We believe that Jesus will get us to heaven. That's good. But, but we also want to have a life of flourishing. We want to experience the good life now, as, as we call it. And so we, we give our hearts to the things of this world, to the pursuits of this world, to the, to the resources of this world, hoping that we can have the good life now and heaven later. We believe, another way that we play this out, is that we, we believe, yes, the kingdom of God is coming. It's even a superior kingdom. But we put our hopes in the kingdom of man expecting that the kingdom of man and the, and the political powers and the 
prescience of the kingdom of man to get us to the kingdom of God today. So we misalign our hearts. Or, or we say, well, I believe that God is love, but we live in such a way that we seek for and drive after the approval and notice of others, that we, that we curate an image or a brand so that others will look at us and, and approve our social media-centered lives and believe that we're worth something, even though the greatest being in all the universe looks at us in love and bestows his worth upon us. We don't believe we have everything we need. There are so many areas of our lives today where we functionally do not believe that Jesus has supplied everything we need for life and for godliness. So we mentally affirm what the Bible says, passages like Ephesians 1 that says we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but practically we deny that truth by how we live. Jesus' final message to his disciples in this what we call, have been calling the farewell discourse, this traveler's trail guide, is aimed at driving their hearts, and driving home in their hearts, that they have everything they need because of what he has done. He concludes this teaching to tell his 11 disciples at this point, guys, you've got it all. I'm with you. You're going to make it home. His life, his death, his resurrection, which is, which is forthcoming for them, but it is the past for us, has secured victory, it has secured Jesus' victory over all things. And from his victory, he gifts to his followers everything we need to follow him. Jesus equips and prepares not just 11 men back 2,000 years ago, but us today, by his word, he equips and prepares us to walk with courage because he supplies all that we need. Uh, to say it this way, Jesus' victory provides us everything that we need to follow him. Truly follower of Jesus, truly Christian, you lack nothing. So as we listen to these final words of Jesus in this intimate moment with them, soon before he is betrayed, as we close out John 16, we're going to discover this morning three resources from his victory that he supplies to us and provides for us everything that we need. These three gifts that he has earned and gives to us so that we overcome as he has overcome. So if you haven't opened your Bible yet, go ahead and do that. Open it up to John 16, verses 25 to 33. And I want to show us these three resources from his victory that he gives to us. The first gift, the first resource that he supplies to us that gives us everything we need is access. It's the resource of the gift of access. And one of the main points in this entire farewell discourse from chapter 13 to chapter 16, what we've been studying over these last nine or ten weeks, has been Jesus' attempts to reassure and give confidence to his disciples. He said some things that have utterly shaken them. He's told them, one of you will betray me. I'm about to depart and, and go to be with my father. One of you will deny me. He tells them these troubling things that he knows is coming, and they're anxious, they're trembling, they're fearful, but he's working towards building their confidence and their faith in him. So he can say to them, something like John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Their, their distress, their anxiety, their that came was a realization that Jesus was departing from them. 
And so they're wondering, what do we do? How do we, how do we live in this life without our leader, our master, our Lord? Peter, the, the leader of the apostles, he had even confessed, he had been the first to confess among them that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah of God. But his perception of who Jesus was as the Christ, maybe it was a little off. It was, it was miscued. He, he thought that Jesus would bring the kingdom of God now, that Israel would overthrow Rome and Jesus would be a political Messiah and leader. So when Jesus says to them, I'm departing and I'm going to be with my father, that is not the way they mapped out the plan. That is not following the script that the, the apostles had thought was going to play out. What are they going to do? How are they going to live without Christ leading them in their presence? So Jesus says, let me tell you about the first gift that I'm giving to resource you with all you need. Access. You have access. Here's what he says to them in verse 25. He points them forward. He says, from this moment on, an hour is coming. I have said these things to you in figures of speech, he says. So things like the vine and the branches, calling the Holy Spirit the helper. He says, I've, I've been saying all these things to you in figures of speech, but the hour is coming, there's a time coming ahead of you when I'm not going to speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And Jesus is, is just saying to them, a, a moment is coming, time ahead is coming when you're going to get it. It's going to be clear. And it's going to be in regards to your relationship with the Father. Jesus becoming a man, the eternal Son of God, putting on flesh and blood, has come to display and to make known the Father. John said this at the beginning of his gospel in chapter 118. He says, no one has ever seen God, yet the only begotten God, the Son of God, who is at the Father's side, he has made, Jesus has made the Father known. Jesus has explained or displayed and shown us who the Father is so that we would see who God is. Jesus said, this is why he's come, to show us the Father. And yet he's saying, you still don't get it. You still don't see it. So the hour is coming when you will get it. I won't have to speak in figures of speech, but I'll speak plainly, and your relationship will change. Their understanding of the Father will change because they have a new, close relationship with him. And so he says, he explains this further. He says in verse 26, in that day, when that hour comes, you will ask in my name. You'll pray in my name. He's been encouraging them to do that all along. He said to them several times, ask and you will receive. Ask that your joy may be full. In that day, you will ask in my name. And he says, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I have come from God. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, there's a new relationship with the Father that doesn't require me to be a mediator or to go between you and Him based on what I already have done. If I could paraphrase this, these two verses this way, Jesus is saying, the day is coming when you will ask in my name, but you won't need me to act as a go-between between you and the Father. You can go to Him directly because He loves you. He loves you because you've trusted me and have loved me. Jesus is saying the things that he will do, the victory that he will win, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father is a trailblazing work to bring us right into a relationship with the Father. Because Jesus came and made the Father known and then closed the gap that our sin had made separating us from the Father by his death and resurrection, the Father is accessible to the disciple of Jesus. We have a new relationship we are adopted children of God. We're close with the Father. And therefore, we have direct access to Him. 
Jesus says that access is because the Father himself loves you. He says you don't have to have somebody else ask you, ask the Father for good things for you. You can ask him yourself because he himself loves you. There's this idea out there, that's an old heresy that's been propagated for centuries, that the God of the Old Testament is an angry, upset, curmudgeon God. He just has nothing but fire and brimstone for everybody. But then Jesus showed up, and he's happy, and he's really good. And so Jesus gets with the Father, and he says, Dad, don't be so grumpy. I'll take care of him. Well, it's foolishness. Jesus here is saying, listen, because of what I've done, the Father's happy. You can go right to him. He, he loves you. He loves to hear from you. That's why he teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What he's saying is if you love and believe in Jesus, if your life is banked on him, you have complete and full access to and love from the Father. He loves you. You don't need a priest to pray for you. You don't need a saint to pray for you. You don't need Mary to pray for you. You've got access completely with the Father. And he sums this up entirely in the arc of his mission in verse 28. He said, I came from the Father, and I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world, and I'm going to the Father. Also, you can follow me straight into the throne room of heaven, through the doors, right into the presence of God. Jesus was sent from heaven, came to earth, lived the perfect sinless life we could not, died as a sacrificial substitute on the cross to pay for and atone for our sins, and he was raised again on the third day. And then 40 days later, after giving multitudes of witnesses full evidence of his bodily resurrection, he ascended back to the Father, where he now presently sits at the Father's right hand. Mission complete. His work was to give us full access to the Father. So good news. If you're in Jesus, there's nothing standing between you and the love of God. Jesus has overcome. He's won victory. Through Jesus, every Christian has an all-access pass right into heaven. I don't know if you've been to an event, like a sporting event or a concert or, or something like that, and you, you know, you're probably not an athlete or maybe a great musician that would be on the stage, but somehow or another, you got one of those all-access passes. And so, and so you could go backstage, you could, you could talk to the band, you could hang out with the sports team, maybe even the locker room, and nobody could throw you out or nobody could say, what are you doing here? You could just show that badge and say, I'm in, all access pass, I can go wherever I want. And they're like, okay, no fear of being there. That's what Christ gives us with the Father. Full access. He reunites us and he restores us to the Father. So again, you don't need a priest, you don't need a saint, you don't need Mary, you don't need another mediator. Jesus has done it completely for you. You can go right to the Father. The writer of Hebrews tells us, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, we have confidence because of what Jesus has done to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, he is the way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have Jesus, a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. He's saying, come on in. Get in on this. Draw close to God. This is the deep motivation and resourcing for us to be people of prayer. Ask. God's not, God's not laying back saying, I'm not ready to hear from these people today. I don't want to talk to them. Ask, draw near, go close. Access has been granted. 
nothing stands between us and God because of Christ. And because you're in Christ, you're loved. The Father Himself loves you. The door's been opened. The Spirit leads us into the presence of God. So again, the writer of Hebrews says, let us with confidence, not timidly, not, not ashamed. He says, boldly, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, the throne of love. Why? To get mercy and grace in a time of need. If you're in a time of need, if you're in a moment of like, I need help, Christian, draw near to God. The door's open. There's no other reason for you to hinder you or to draw you back. Go near to Him. Jesus provides that access to you through what He has accomplished in His life and death and resurrection. So draw near. Access has been granted. That's the first resource of the first gift that He gives to us in His victory. Secondly, Jesus says, or the second resource in victory that we have is clarity. Clarity and who He is and what He's done. One of the things that usually happened with the disciples when, they were, when Jesus taught them before they had been given the Holy Spirit was they, they misunderstood what Jesus was saying. He said something and they're like, oh, we think it means this. And they're like, no, that's not what that means at all. In fact, that's a problem that still happens today. Anybody without the Holy Spirit often misunderstands exactly what Jesus is saying. Guess what? These guys do it again here. I mean, it's right before the cross, and they are still on a level of misunderstanding about what Jesus is saying. They think they get it, but they don't. And so Jesus helps them. What they think they understand is they think, oh, this hour when they have full access is now. Jesus will bring the kingdom. He'll overthrow Rome. Pilate's out. Jesus is in. Revolution is there. And Jesus says, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus was speaking about his hour to come, specifically his death. The hour for Jesus was laying down his life. Victory would look like defeat. But they pipe up in their misunderstanding and they say, verse 29, Ah, oh, now you're speaking plainly. Like, we get it now. We're not using figurative speech. He's like, oh, I don't know. Now we know you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God because you just know it all. <laughs> Yet, they don't have clarity. They don't have clarity because they don't understand the cross and the resurrection and the victory that Jesus has won. So Jesus answered them by muting their, sense of self, their own self-clarity. He says in verse 31, do you now believe? You think I know it all, and, and so now do you believe? He says, be careful. I mean, this is the paraphrase of what he's saying. Be careful that you think you get it, but you don't. And then he leans in and he says two things that will shape their relationship. He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. So an hour is here at hand, but you guys, you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. So here's the problem of of this new reality to begin with. Jesus says, you think you have clarity, you think I'm the Messiah, you believe that you're going to charge the hill with me and overthrow Rome, but the hour that's really at hand is the hour of my betrayal and suffering, and none of you is going to stick around for that. It's it's here, Judas is just coming around the trail, and you guys are going to bolt, every single one of you. You're going to run to your houses, you'll leave me alone, you will abandon me. 
That's what happened. Judas came. Those who came to arrest Jesus were there. And there was a little skirmish to begin with, but then everybody fled. Matthew records in 2656, all the disciples left him and fled. Everybody abandoned Jesus. Now, if you're Jesus and you're abandoned by your followers, you would think that that would mean, well, it's time to bail out on them too. But Jesus leans into a second relationship, and that second relationship reframes the first relationship. The verse keeps going, and he says, Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus says, You will all abandon me because you don't understand, you don't have clarity, but the Father won't abandon me. He is with me. I'm not alone. And it's because he has not abandoned me that I won't abandon you. It's on the basis of the Father's non-abandonment of the Son. The Son doesn't abandon us. That's the clarity for his disciples and the clarity for us. Jesus suffers and dies and is raised to life again and wins victory to secure us, to bring us home so that we today, looking back, see his death and resurrection was for our good. So in those moments of trial and tribulation, when we feel like bailing out on him, we need to know the clarity is there. I'm not bailing out on you. One scholar put it this way, the glue of Christianity is not the disciples, it's Jesus who will not abandon the disciples. Jesus is secure enough Jesus is enough to secure his relationship with his people, and he is secure enough in his relationship with the Father that he won't be abandoned. So what he's providing here is this clarity on what's ahead. They will encounter, and his commitment to them will be, despite their failure, he'll never leave them. And that's a good news for us on this side of the cross. Jesus has completed his mission. We're not left alone. We're not abandoned. We're not in the dark on what he has done for us. When I think about if I'm prepared, I I think about for hikers and backpackers, there's a list of the things called the 10 essentials. They're the sort of things that you must have whenever you go out on the trail, especially if you go by yourself. One of the things at the top of the list always is some form of navigation, particularly a compass, they'll say, and a map, but you can have a GPS device or some sort of satellite tracker or personal locator, but you should never go out into the wilderness without a compass, a map, knowing where you're going. That resource is essential because it provides clarity for a traveler where, for where they're at in case they get lost or to prevent them from getting lost. This is the clarity that Jesus provides and that he gives to us so we can walk with him. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension are all evidence that he has won victory, that he's overcome. And we have clarity through that. When you read the Bible and you hear what Jesus has done, you see this is it. He is the Savior who lived the perfect life you have not, died for your sins, was raised to life again on the third day, and now is ascended to the Father where he sits and rules and reigns over all things. You can either trust him or you can deny him. But we have clarity. His word gives us that clarity. And the Spirit of God takes the word and illumines our hearts and wakes us up and gives us that clarity on who Jesus is, what he has done, so that we walk with him. Jesus calls us to believe him because he has not hidden himself. Who Jesus is and what he has done is not obscured in some deep mystery that is unknowable. 
True faith is believing what has been revealed, what is known, and depending on Jesus alone. So Jesus' question to his disciples is a good one for us. If we have clarity from the Word of God on who he is and what he has done, the question volleys back to us, do we believe? Do you believe? Do you believe the Scriptures? Do you believe that Jesus is God, sent from the Father, lived the life that we couldn't live, died in our place for our sins, was raised to life again, and has ascended to the Father, and one day he will return and make all things new and right and take his people home? Do you believe? Jesus' victory, he provides that clarity, everything we need for life and godliness. We have full and free access to the Father. We have clarity on who He is and what He has done. And a third resource awaits us as well, namely peace. The conclusion of this whole discourse is encapsulated in Jesus' statement in verse 33. I have said these things to you, all these things. Go back to chapter 13, start there. I've said all these things to you for this reason, that in me you may have peace. Jesus' ultimate aim and teaching of all of this is so that you and I would have steadied hearts, that we would, we would have whole peace, we would have rest in this world. His aim, his goal has been for that, for our peace. And, and you know, we may look and wonder, like, well, what does that peace really look like? I mean, do I, am I really steady in him? May the, uh, do the, the, the hell and high water things, the, the good and the bad, the tribulation and trials, the ups and downs in life, do they lead into peace or are we, are we rattled all the time? We wonder what this peace really looks like. Now, Jesus clarifies that it will not be the kind of peace that he gives, the peace that he's giving to us, isn't, isn't a freedom from turbulence or trials or hard days. The peace that Jesus gives and has won for us isn't summed up in the stupid phrase, every day of Friday. It's not in a life of health or wealth or good looks or great eats. Jesus, in fact, says, you will have trouble in this world. Bank on it. But he offers peace. So what does that look like? Trouble will come. And if that trouble comes, that doesn't mean that peace is not there. That peace resides in him. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. If we see Jesus for who he is, for what he's done, the world can foment and rage. Everything can go up or down, good or bad, and we can just be relaxed in him because he has won the victory. Jesus points us to the last day when he will come again, and he says, rest in my peace. I'm victorious. I have overcome the world. The outcome is certain. So, so let 2022 be way crazy. It's okay. I got you. I'm going to get you home. You're going to make it. You can have peace. Don't worry about what's going on in D.C. or Lansing or wherever else. I am in control. Jesus is the victorious one. He says to us, he says, in the world you will have trouble, tribulation, but take heart. Or another way of translating that is be courageous. Be encouraged. Get up off the floor of your own pity. Take the blows that the world gives and keep on following Jesus because he says, I have overcome the world. 
I think one of the reasons that we have so much anxiety and tribulation and trouble today is because we're not looking to the end and the story of the victory of Jesus over all things. We're so focused on the here and now and the little minutia and the granular things of this world and this present life that we have failed completely to see that Jesus has secured our victory. He gets us home so we can follow him. We can follow him through the tribulation and the trials. He says, in me. If you're looking for the peace in this world, apart from Jesus, it's not there. It's empty. Just call it what it is, a bankrupt system of life. But if you find Jesus, if you draw near to him, you will have peace. If you see who he is, you see the victory he won, you put your eyes on what he has done for you and his coming and who he is, let the world rage. Let it go crazy. Christ is king, and he won't lose a one of us. He won't lose a one of his people. He's defeated our greatest enemies. Satan has been crushed, sin vanquished, death put to death. Jesus has vindicated himself. He has won victory over the world, over the devil, even over our flesh. The powers and oppositions of this world are weak and impotent in light of King Jesus. The writer of the psalmist is so good, and he says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed? He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He says, I have set my king on my holy hill. And so the call says, now, now, therefore, O people of earth, O kings, be wise. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Love the Son. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. It's what Jesus says. In this world you have trouble, but in me you have peace. Take heart. Be courageous. Follow me. I have overcome the world. That's good news, friends. We need to see that. We're not under the pressure to secure our own victory. Christ has done it. We don't need to believe we're on the outs with God when trials and affliction come our way. He is victorious, and he says, I want you to have peace. Be courageous. Trust me. We're loved by God. The gospel, and I like the way that Tim Keller articulates it, is this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, We are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So we can live with the peace, that we have peace with God. We can believe the word that says, since we have been justified or declared righteous by faith, we have that peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can trust Jesus as we follow him through our own affliction and trial, knowing that he loves us and is near to us, and he is working all things together for our good and for his glory. We can look forward to the day that he returns and all is made new and right. We will not be forgotten or lost if we are in Christ. Peace is in him, ultimate peace, the peace that transcends all understanding. So, Do you have everything you need? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of his, a Christian, the answer is yes. You have everything you need. You're equipped. You don't need to rearrange the pack, figure out a new weight load or anything like that. Let's go. 
With Jesus, you can walk with courage, faith, and peace in this life because he's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence. Jesus' victory provides us everything we need to follow him. But Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're not a disciple or a follower of Jesus yet. And you go, I want that. I want that access. I want that clarity. I want that peace. I have good news for you. You can get in on this too. Jesus summons. He, he invites anyone who hears his voice to repent, to confess their sins, and to believe in him and to trust him forever. He, he won't turn away anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith and says, be merciful to me. Jesus will embrace you. So friend, if you, if you aren't a follower of Jesus, but you say, I want in on that, this morning, confess your sins, turn from them, and believe. Put your faith, put your hope, put all of your life in Jesus. And the resources that he has secured in his victory will be yours as well. The whole question, the, let me just conclude this entire series this way. The whole point of the Follower's Trail Guide is to ask us the question, will we follow him? Will we venture out trusting him into a life of faith in the world? Jesus has paved the way. He is the way. And he has supplied everything we need for our success. So we don't have to sit here timid and worried and anxious and troubled. Get up. Go into the world following Jesus and he'll get us home. Let's follow him. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.